0: to do is we're going to go through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which is found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the uh, chapters 5 through 7, and to, I, I thought, I was trying to think about how to set this up for you, which by the way, you have the passage for you on the back of your handout, and it should be up here in just a second. But to set this up for you, um, I don't know if you're Modern Family fans, um, I, 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 Three of you are. Um, <laughs> my wife and I are big Modern Family fans, so we usually rec- we record it every Wednesday night and then probably we'll watch it uh, tomorrow night because you know we'll, I will be in bed shortly after RUF is over. So we'll watch it tomorrow night. And I, if, you're, if you're familiar or unfamiliar with the show, the husband figure, kind of the goofy, quirky husband, Phil Dunphy, if, you, if you're up to speed, uh, he came out with a little book that he wrote called Phil's osophy And in it is a collection of little one-liners, little life lessons that he's kind of written throughout the years that he wanted to hand down to his kids. And so here are a couple of uh, these these life lessons that he learned. He says this, if you love something set it free unless it's a tiger. (laughs) You can tell a lot about a person from his biography. (laughs) Success, success is 1% inspiration, 98% perspiration, and 2% attention to detail. <laughs> I really like this one. He says, if you're ever in a jam, a crayon scrunched up under your nose makes a good pretend mustache. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but it's funny. And, and here's my favorite. He says, when life gives you lemonade, make lemons. Life will be all like, what? What? <laughs> Now, the reason that I bring that up is because the Sermon on the Mount is filled with familiar little one-liners. Little things that Jesus says like, turn the other cheek. Uh, Go the second mile. Uh, You're the salt of the earth. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Judge not lest ye be judged, to get King james E on you. But but what I mean is, this is probably Jesus' most famous and familiar to us set of teachings that he's ever taught. But yet, consequently, I think it's probably the least understood. Because it's not a collection of pithy little sayings that you can calligraphy and frame and hang up in your kitchen. It's not a a collection of proverbs, nor is it, as Gandhi thought it was, uh, great teaching on how humans uh, can live great lives to make the world a better place. It's not that. The Sermon on the Mount, if I could boil it down to this, is how life functions in the kingdom of God. Or or to put it in a nutshell, I would say this, that that the Sermon on the Mount is about how to live as a community that submits to the reign of King Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about how a community is to live as it submits to the governing, loving reign of King Jesus. So, for example, when I was in college, me and my friends tried to start a fraternity. It was a complete... um, it was a joke to us. It wasn't a real fraternity. We, we, we just thought it was hilarious to get a university-recognized organization that we would make T-shirts and go on mixers with real sororities. And um, the name of our fake fraternity was going to be called tri It was going to be Mew, Mew, Mew. And, um, <laughs> and so, and so I found, I did some research, because we, we were legit about this, I did some research and I found out if you want a university recognized organization, you, you have to uh, submit a, a constitution to the university. And the constitution is this formally, uh, formal document that explains all of your procedures and bylaws and policies, it explains how uh, voting takes place, it explains your code of conduct, it ex- you know, all of that stuff is what a constitution is. By the way, it never happened, TriMU didn't get off the ground because I cannot find a faculty advisor to sign off their name to their, our stupid idea. But the reason I bring this up is because John Stott, who is this famous Christian minister, theologian, author, says that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' his his manifesto, his constitution of what it means to be a Christian counterculture. It's, it's, it's Jesus describing for us what it means to be a Christian counterculture, which means that the Christian community is to be an alternative society within a larger society. So with all of that sort of introductory background, let's look at this opening section in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read the first 10 verses, famous, familiar passage maybe for some of you, and we're going to jump in and talk about it for the rest of our time. Let me read it. It says this in verse 1. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray before we look at it in more detail. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, bringing us back together from uh, a break, a break that for some of us was tumultuous, for some of us was uh, really hard to be back home around family, for some of us who just felt uh, buried underneath their own addictions and their own guilt and their own shame because they were lonely and isolated and away from friends and community, a break that for some of us was great and felt rejuvenated and refreshed. Uh, Father, we... We thank you that you've brought us all back together again, but we know that this room is filled with people from all different kinds of places and all sorts of different uh, situations, and so we pray that you administer to us now in these next few moments. Would you teach us by your spirit and through your word? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said before, I do have an infant in my house now, which means I do not sleep much, because a child eats every. Basically, every three hours. And so, there are a few occasions when I'm up with Reed in the middle of the night and and I'm giving him a bottle because I'm trying to let Catherine get some sleep. And when I put him down, I know he's going to be up again in three hours and, and I'm going to get up with him so that Catherine can sleep. So, I have a three hour window that I need to try to capitalize and maximize sleep on. So, when I lay down, it's like a race, it's like try to get to sleep as fast as possible. But you know how this works. Because sleep is crazy counterintuitive. When you force it, when you try to make it happen, you just lay there. And so I just would lay there saying, sleep, go to sleep, body. Do it. Doesn't do it. When you force it, it doesn't work. When you stop and just relax and don't care about it, it kind of just mysteriously happens. The reason I bring this up is because in the same way Jesus is going to lay out for us in this passage that we just read how crazy, counterintuitive his community is the the, the community of people that he is forming is so it goes against every impulse that we think it it almost doesn't make sense to us and so what I want to do is just look at how this is true in two ways I want to look at the the, the counterintuitive characteristics of this community that Jesus is forming and then I want to look at the counterintuitive power behind it, okay, two things the counterintuitive character counterintuitive power First, let's look at the counterintuitive character. If you look at verse 3 through 10, kind of when Jesus first starts speaking, he lays out eight characteristics of the Christian community. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, on and on and on. But these eight attributes could kind of be organized into two big overarching things. So let's just look at, let's kind of organize this into two big bucket ideas instead of having to look at eight All individually. The two big overarching ideas of what describes and characterizes the Christian community is that they are needy and that they are loving. First, let's look at the characteristics of what it means to be needy. First, verse three, he says that they are poor in spirit. Now, think about what it means to be financially poor. This means that you do not have uh, the resources that you need, this means that you are unable to provide for yourself. This means that you are dependent on the generosity of others. So if that's what it means to be poor in financial terms, what does it mean to be poor in spirit, to be poor in spiritual terms? Uh, It means to say that you don't have the spiritual resources that you need. That when it comes to your relationship with God, you're on welfare. You're bankrupt. And you're completely dependent upon his mercy for you. You know, there's lots of students at App, that would say, um, you know, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a bad person, but neither am I Mother Teresa either. I'm just kind of a middle-of-the-road, just kind of normal person. I try to be nice, I try to work hard, I try to be kind to other people. And what you have to see is that's not poor in spirit. As Tim Keller humorously puts it, that's being middle class in spirit. And what that means is, if you're going to admit that you're poor in spirit, then you don't don't think like that, you don't talk like that. Rather, you look at yourself and say, I'm not good. I have nothing to offer my relationship with God. I have nothing in me that's going to impress him with my moral ability, my ethics, anything that's about me. That means to admit that you're spiritually bankrupt. And if this relationship between you and God is going to work out, it's going to have to be completely based off of his generosity and his mercy. That's the first characteristic of being needy, is that you're poor in spirit. Second, he says in verse 4, it's those who mourn. Now, despite how it sounds, this isn't talking about someone who's lost a family member or a friend. This is, you know, the context is someone who mourns over their sinfulness, who mourns over the fact that they're poor in spirit, who mourns over the fact that they are broken and and messy. You know, um, most Christians, I would say, I think acknowledge that they're a sinner. And I think because most Christians kind of think that they kind of have to. That's just kind of part of the gig, you know. But I'm curious for you, if you consider yourself a Christian, does that ever move from like just an intellectual category where you check a box where you acknowledge, yeah, I'm a sinner, and does it ever move its way into your heart where you actually feel it? And you mourn over it. And you're actually sad over your broken condition and your own impulses to run away from God and to abandon him and to betray him. Because Christians sing, real Christians sing, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Not just I acknowledge it, but I feel it. Those who mourn. The third characteristic of what it means to be needy is the meek. Look at verse 5. He says the meek. Blessed are the meek. And this is not referring to a personality type. This isn't uh, referring to someone who's soft-spoken or timid, nor is it referring to someone who's wimpy. Meekness means confident humility. Bold humility. I mean, think about this. Um, These are people that don't feel like they need to insist on their rights all the time. These are people that don't feel like they need to constantly have the recognition and the praise. I mean, do you know how much inner confidence it takes to not want to take credit for everything? I mean, how much inner strength does it take to not post your grades on Facebook and Twitter? How much inner confidence does it really take to feel like you don't have to kind of broadcast your accomplishments to the world? That takes an incredible amount of confidence humble confidence. That's what what meekness is. So if you string these first three attributes together, these first three characteristics, Jesus says the community of Jesus, the church, the community of faith, is first and foremost needy. Now over the Christmas break with our two-year-old, we wanted to show her all of the kind of old Christmas classic movies. So we, uh, we showed her the old like 1960s version of The Grinch and uh, the old um, uh, Frosty the Snowman kind of cartoon. And we watched the, the old um, claymation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> which if you if you haven't seen that in a while I, it's been for i was it's probably the last time i saw it was when i was a little kid it's hilarious <laughs> i don't know if it's supposed to be but it's hilarious anyway if you're familiar with the old claymation thing uh, at one point rudolph and his crew rolls upon the island of misfit toys and for whatever reason there's this island where like it's like I ma- i don't know how it happens but all of these broken, mismatched, misfit toys end up there. So on this island, you have uh, a boat that can't float. You have, instead of a jack-in-the-box toy, you have a Charlie in the box. Uh, And you have a cowboy who is not riding a horse like he's supposed to, but he's riding an ostrich. And it's basically this collection of broken, messed-up misfits. And that's a picture of the community of Jesus. A collection of broken, messed up misfits. Now here's the question, is that what you thought? If you're a Christian, is that how you think about yourself? Is that what your church is like? Is that what RUF is like? Jesus seems to say that the community that he's forming is first and foremost needy, poor in spirit, meek mourning over their sin, but not just needy. The second sort of big characteristic that he zeroes in on is not just neediness, but, but a willingness to love. It's not just needy, but a, but a loving characteristic as, as well. So let's look at this kind of 2nd subpoint here. And it gives you kind of the next five things, and I'll be brief for here for the sake of time. Look at verse 6. He says, it, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that basically means that the community of Jesus longs for this world to be, m- be made Right? Every aspect of this world to be fixed. Everything in your life, everything on this campus, everything in this town, everything in this culture, everything in this world. We long for it to be set right, to be fixed. Second thing, he says, they're the merciful. Verse 7, this is describing compassion for other people in need. So the community of Jesus does not just get together and say, let's try to fix our needs, let's, let's satisfy ourselves here together, but it's outward-focused, strategically thinking about how can we care for other people outside of, our, outside of ourselves. Third characteristic is that they are pure in heart, verse 8. Now, he's not talking primarily about sort of inner moral purity. In the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, whenever that phrase is used, pure in heart, it just means undivided allegiance. This means that the community of Jesus has a, has a laser-beamed, focused commitment on Jesus. And we want our priorities to be in line with his. So we want to hate what he hates, and we want to love what he loves. Fourth characteristics, the peacemakers. Verse 9. Peace is that great Old Testament word, uh, shalom, which means universal flourishing, complete holistic well-being, and so this is saying that the church, the community of Jesus, seeks to love others holistically. We don't want to just meet their spiritual needs, but their physical needs, their relational needs. Their, every need that they have, that's what we're into. And then the last sort of characteristic, verse 10, uh, the persecuted. This means that as the church moves into the world, uh, the church is going to experience opposition. If you think about it... Um, The way that the Christian community does dating, the way that we date each other, is just weird to the outside world. And you're going to be made fun of for that. You're going to be laughed at for that. The way that the Christian community thinks about alcohol and sex and entertainment and culture is just weird to the outside world. And so you will be made fun of if you embrace Christian values in those categories. So string all this together. These five things he strings together and says the community of Jesus is not just needy but loving. We are committed to not just serving ourselves, but the world around us. Is that what you thought? Is, would that be how you describe yourself? If you think about your day, your calendar, as you're kind of mapping out your semester in front of you, is it all basically just about you? Or is there any space that you've carved out for other people? Is that what your church is like? Is that what RUF is like? If not, then We've got a lot to repent of. So to summarize all this together, put all this together as far as the character of the community of Jesus, here's what it basically is boiled down to in a nutshell, is this, is that we are broken, messed- up people who seek to love others holistically. That's it. That's the character of this community that Jesus is forming, is that we're broken and messed up, but we aggressively seek to love others holistically. As one commentary put it, he said, uh, we throw ourselves at God uh, helplessly, we throw ourselves at God helplessly, and then we throw ourselves at the world helpfully. So, that's the character of the Christian community that Jesus is forming. Here's the second question. Where in the world do we get the power to do this? to admit that we're needy, that to admit that we're broken, to admit that we're messed up, and to love others this holistically. Because if you're anything like me, uh, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to admit that I'm weak. I don't want to admit that I'm needy. I, even when we were with Reed in the hospital, I, I did a terrible job of involving my intimate close friends because I felt like I, I don't want their sympathy. I don't want their, uh, I can do this my own. I got this. I don't like admitting I'm weak. I don't like admitting I'm needy. And I don't want to love others holistically. I want them to love me holistically. So where in the world then do we get the power to actually do this? Well, that's the second thing that I want to look at. This this crazy, counterintuitive power of the Christian community. And the power is packed into that word that Jesus uses several times when he says, bless it. In verses 3 through 10, he just announces blessing eight different times. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, we live in kind of churchy, Bible-belty land, and so the word blessing almost has no meaning to us now. Because we live in a time and age, we live in a culture where blessing is basically equated... With material prosperity, so you say like "Oh man God must you know i 'm blessed by God because check on my escalade, or you know I had an amazing Christmas, look at all this stuff i got i 'm really blessed and so that 's what we equate we equate blessing with material possessions, and you know some people have said that blessing basically just means happy, which is okay, but it 's a little unhelpful because your know, blessedness is not referring to a Temporary emotional feeling. It's something much bigger. So what is it? Well, the idea of blessing echoes back to the Old Testament idea of how God relates to people through covenants. Now, if we had more time, I would unpack what that means, but just suffice it to say that blessing means this. Being blessed is a permanent state of well-being because you are in a relationship with God whereby you have his favor. Blessing, being blessed, means that you are in a permanent state of well-being, permanent state of well-being, because you are in a right relationship with God whereby you get his favor and his validation and his approval. So to, to illustrate it like this, uh, probably the hardest thing that I had to do when I was dating my wife back in the day, Catherine, was to sit down with her father to ask for his blessing uh, for us to get engaged. We had been dating for nine months. I called up her dad, took him out to this restaurant, and I was so nervous that you know the salads got there, and I took two bites of my salad, and it was like my stomach I, I cannot handle any more food. I, I cannot, which is not... Um, the impression that you want to leave with your future father-in-law is showing him how masculine you are by getting full from two bites of salad. Anywho. Um, so I sat down with him, as nervous as I was, and I asked him for Catherine's hand in marriage. I asked him for his blessing. Now what was I doing? I was basically asking him for his approval, for his, for his validation. Do you sign off on me? Do you sign off on us? That's what blessedness is. It's, it's God giving you his validation. Or or think of it like this. Here's another way to illustrate it. I I don't watch the show Mad Men, but um, I have watched the first episode, the first pilot, and at the end of the first episode, Don Draper, who is the um, kind of great advertisement creative genius, kind of the main character in the show, he gives you a definition of happiness that is brilliant. And happiness, as you remember, is how some people translate the word blessing, so there's a lot of parallel here. But here's what he says. He says, you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car, it's freedom from fear, and then here's what I want to highlight: it's a billboard on the side of the road that screams, reassures, whatever you're doing, it's okay, you're okay. See, the thing that's so brilliant about that is because he's tapping into this idea that blessedness, real happiness, real deep inner blessedness, gets at this idea that whatever you're doing, it's okay, you're validated, you're approved of, you're good. And if we are honest. Every one of us is starving for this. We are, we are starving in the, the core of who we are for that type of validation, that type of reassurance, for someone to look at us and to know without a doubt that you matter, that you are valuable, that you are loved, that they sign off on you, that you're validated, that you have that approval. All of us want it. And all of us are, are striving with everything in us to get it. So, for example, Michael Jackson, in a taped interview, taped conversation that I heard with him recently, he says this to the interviewer. He says this. He says, I'm going to say something I've never said before, and this is the truth. I have no reason to lie to you. God knows I'm telling the truth. I think all my success and fame, and I've wanted it, I've wanted it, was because I wanted to be loved. That's all. The drive, that that longing to be loved, that longing to have somebody say to you, you matter, I sign off on you, it it drove him uh, to his death, ultimately. And and I think uh, that you desperately want this too. Deep down in your soul, if you're honest, you want this too. And it's driving you to do crazy things to get it. I, I think personally this is why porn is out of control. Pornography, to me, as I understand it, is not, I think it goes way much deeper than just the, the biological um, uh, pleasure that you may get from it. It goes way, it, it, porn is tapping into something so much deeper than just uh, your, your anatomy. Because when you're looking at porn, you're fantasizing about a woman or a man who is looking at you, why, why are those faces on those images uh, faces of desire, why, why are you fantasizing about somebody looking at you with longing in their eyes? It, it's, it, it goes way deeper than just the anatomy. It goes way deeper than just the, 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 the pleasure. It's because it is your soul screaming out for someone to love you. It's your, skull, your, your, your soul longing for another human being to look at you with that sort of validating desire, to want you to say that you matter this is why twilight was out of control a couple of years as well it's just it's just emotional porn that's all it, that's not that's all it is because the reason why that was so hyper people got crazy about twilight is because people read those books and wanted to be looked at in the same way that Edward looked at Bella and vice versa you laugh, but I'm right. It's twilight. It's 50 shades of gray. It's, it, this is, it, it is, it's emotional porn where you're looking out, and it, this is all your soul just screaming at you, wanting, I want that love. I want that validation. I want another human being to approve of me at the depths of who I am. This is why, by the way, you check Facebook 300 times a day. Why you're just you're you're constantly checking to see has somebody has somebody liked my status? Did somebody comment on my on my you know photo that I just put up? I know you do it because I do it. And, and what we're doing is that's not that's not just a bad habit we've gotten ourselves into. What what that is is our soul screaming out to the internet. Is there anyone out there that loves me? Is there anyone out there that will approve of me and give me some sort of validation, even if it's just one little notification? One little like. All of us, in the depths of our soul, want this. And frankly, this is why a lot of you ladies stay in relationships with really crappy guys. Why you stay in really bad relationships, because you're just so desperate for that longing, for, for that validation, for that approval, that it doesn't matter how bad the relationship is, you'll just stay in it because you have to have it. Uh, This is why I think for some of you it might be the case uh, that you're confused sexually because all you've ever experienced from the opposite gender has been rejection and all you've ever experienced from uh, your own gender has been acceptance and approval and it's just easy to to sexualize that sort of validation. I think this is why for some of you, uh, you're workaholics. You will not stop working because there's some... You know, ghost out there, some uh, blank face that you're trying to get the approval and the validation from. I don't know who it is. Here's, what, here's my point with all of this. All of this, uh, all of us, are longing in the depths of our soul for that sort of validation, that sort of approval, and it's driving us crazy because we can never have enough of it. And so we're driven to be neurotic, we're driven to be anxious, we're driven to be busy, we're driven to be insane. Here's what's crazy counterintuitive about the community of Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are these people. Not blessed will be these people if they do these things. Enormous difference. Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying the community of faith already has this. This blessedness, this approval, this validation, this primal cosmic instinct that all of us want, Jesus is saying for the community of faith, the community of Jesus, you already have it. And the way that you got it is because you received it as a gift, not because you earned it, because you can never earn it. That's what's so crazy counterintuitive about this. To set this up, to illustrate this, and, and I'll wrap up here. As I explained earlier, uh, when our son Reed uh, was two days old and he was airlifted via helicopter to Charlotte, I I don't know about you, but the thought of getting into a helicopter is not uh, my idea of fun. It's not an adventure. You may kind of Enjoy that. Um, I like to stay on the ground. I, I, uh, I don't have a fear. I have a fear of heights. I like anti-helicopter. So uh, the thought of, of him getting into a helicopter, that day, when we found out that that was, was, was going to have to happen, I was offering to ride with him. I wanted to be with him and ride down. Um, I, I, also, uh, I didn't know if he was going to have to have blood transfusion, so I was offering uh, to give blood. Do you, need my, do you need my blood as his father or whatever? And, and you don't know this probably about me, but I hate giving blood. It makes me queasy, makes me wiggly, and uh, <laughs> I'm not a fan of giving blood. But here I am, willing to kind of do anything for this kid. And, and granted, I've known this human for 48 hours and I was willing to do things for him that frankly I would not do for people that I've known a lot longer than 48 hours and now that we have him back home uh, we are giving up our sleep we're giving up our energy, we're giving up our time giving up our priorities do you know what we get in return from him? his poop that's literally the exchange we give up our life he gives us his crap, take this laughter you know? But here's the point. Here's the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because he is our son. He's my son. And so I would be willing to do anything for him. I'd be willing to give up my life for this kid. Because he's my son. He already has my favor, my, my validation, my approval. He didn't have to do anything to earn it. And here's what's beautiful. The way that you get this counterintuitive power to flow into your lives, this blessing that we're talking about, is when you see that Jesus was not just willing to give up his life for you, but that he actually did. Later in the Bible, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, That at the cross, Jesus was crushed underneath the curse of God so that you could receive the blessing of God. In other words, at the cross, Jesus was utterly disapproved by God so that you could be completely and radically approved by God. That's the exchange that actually happened. He was so utterly disapproved, he gave up his life in order to get you. And that includes all of your crap in exchange, metaphorically speaking. Now, when you admit... I need Jesus, and you come to him empty-handed because you're poor in spirit, that's an act of faith. That's you coming to him and acknowledging that you're desperate, that you're poor in spirit, that you don't have anything to offer. That's you mourning over your sin, and the reality is that when you do that, God says, you will receive my favor. Not because of you, not even because of how genuine that move towards me is. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. And because of him, you now have the invincible validation of God. The only person in the universe that matters has given you his approval when you come to him through Jesus. And what this does, this is an unshakable, invincible reassurance that whatever you're doing you're okay and when you doubt it you look back at the cross because the cross is God screaming at you with reassurance you have my approval it's okay you are okay because of Jesus even if you're not okay even if you're a mess even if your life is a wreck even if there's a lot in your life to deal with and repent of and change and deal with when you look back at the cross that is where you get the reassurance I have the blessing I don't have to prove myself for it I already have it And when you get this, when you get this counterintuitive power and it flows into your life, this changes everything about you. You no longer need to uh, be in the spotlight. You no longer need uh, all the recognition. You're no longer desperate for other people's approval, everybody to like you all the time. You're you're free to admit when, when you screwed up. You're free to let other people in on your own struggles, on your own issues, on your own issues, on your own uh, you know, situation. You are, uh, you're radically humble, and you're propelled to love other people in the same way that you've been loved. No longer is your life's goal about meeting your needs, now it's about meeting other people's needs. Now, let me just ask you this in closing. If that type of community actually existed, and it was filled with people like that, wouldn't you want to be a part of it? <laughs> And is that, isn't that something not just what you need, but isn't that what app needs? Isn't that what the world needs? A bigger community of people that are willing to admit that they're messed up, willing to you know, take the blame, and radically oriented towards loving other people. That is the community. That is the counterintuitive community that Jesus is forming. Right here. Right under our noses. And so what we're going to do each week in RUF is we're going to explore the Sermon on the Mount. I want to invite you to come back and explore it with us because as we begin to unpack the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see what this community looks like more and more in detail and then how you can get on the action. So consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, we do pray that this counterintuitive power would would flow into our lives, that, that by your grace, we would freely admit that we are poor in spirit, that we are broken, that we need you, that we would lean onto you, throw ourselves at you helplessly? And as a result, would you give us that sort of deep inner validation and approval that would just transform us from the inside out so that we would not be, we would not live these crazy lives that we're living, but we'd be free. We'd be free to love other people. Father, would you make that true in me? Would you make that true in this in this little community right here that you've, you've formed here at App with RUF? <laughs> Would you make that true with the church universal? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.